Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We will be looking this morning in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 41, and you can find it on your, or in your pew Bible on page 924. Hear now the reading of God's Word. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had, gone, and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. When grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. O Lord, as we look upon this truth, we ask that you might send forth your spirit, that we might learn something fresh, something righteous, something altogether good about the gospel. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Many of you probably keep up with the calendar, and so you already know that it's May. If you don't, it's May, and we're roughly at mid-May, so you need to hurry. And perhaps May resembles different things for many of you, but for some of us, May means playoffs. And you're curious, what playoffs are you talking about? We're talking about the NBA playoffs. Now, if you forgot that they came in May, it's acceptable because they're entirely too long. They have not asked for my opinion, but I will give it to them. They are entirely too long. It takes them too long to complete their playoffs. But in view of the fact that they are in the playoffs, I want to provide for you a story. Many of you might recall two particular players. I want to draw your attention back to 1996. I understand for some that's a very, very long time, and for others, you're laughing because you're thinking, that's not long at all. But it's 1996. There are two men. One, his name is Kobe Bryant. Perhaps you've heard of him. And the other is Shaquille O'Neal. If that name sounds unfamiliar, most people call him Shaq. Okay? Those two men joined forces in 1996. They were playing together, that is professional basketball, for the Los Angeles Lakers. Shaquille O'Neal did not start with the Lakers, but he did come over to the Lakers. And beginning in 1996, these two men formed quite an interesting relationship. They were a very effective duo in basketball. Not immediately, but coming closer to the year 2000, they would go on to win a three-peat, if that's not usual language for you, that is three consecutive championships. And that was Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant. They led the team. Now the Lakers, if you know anything about basketball, they have quite the history, a very significant history. And these two individuals only began to expand it. Well, in 2004, that duo was split up. Shaquille O'Neal 
They lost to the Detroit Pistons in the championship, and he would go to the Miami Heat. And upon one post-game interview, he was asked about his relationship with that of Kobe Bryant. And what he said is, winning championships do not equal friendship. Winning championships do not equal friendship. They would argue often about who gets the ball, who gets the last shot, and everything else in between. But when you look at the two of them, it's hard to understand that quotation, isn't it? Because you're looking and you're saying you are at the what you might call the pinnacle of success. You're winning championships at the highest level. How could there not be a deeper relationship or friendship there? It's because we have this understanding that says success means there's no strife. Our text this morning, Paul and Barnabas are not Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe, so I'm not suggesting that. But as you're reading Acts chapter 15, you might be tempted to think, look at this unparalleled picture of success in the church. How is there now strife? They just came together, stood firm on the gospel. They resolved one of the greatest controversies in the early church, just in time for another problem. And so I want to look at this idea, Christian and conflict, and to settle your minds. I know Pastor Joel's not here. That's not true of us. He's just out of town. We are on the same page about this. But Christians in conflict, how do we understand this short passage? I want to do so with three points. That is context, conflict, and consequence. Let's look at the context. To be sure, if you want to understand what Luke is telling you in verses 36 through 41, we need to back up and have two forms of context. What has Luke been saying? How do we understand what is taking place in these simple verses, this disagreement between Paul and Barnabas about the individual, the man, John Mark? But to understand its conflict, you need to know what Luke has been saying. He promised very early on in his letter that the gospel is going to go forth. It's going to reach the entirety of the world. It's going to begin in Jerusalem, but it's going to go out. And what you recognize is there's been quite the ministry experience. The Spirit of God shows up at Pentecost, and immediately, miracle after miracle after miracle begins to happen. And not merely miracles of, say, healing, but miracles of salvation. People are coming to faith all over the place. And normally, not just one and two at a time. At times, there are thousands that are coming to faith. So the Spirit of God shows up, and there is a great revival. And then we move into Acts 13. And what you've recognized is Paul and Barnabas, they've been set apart from the church, and they have been set out to do some ministry. They have been in Cyprus, and as you heard this morning, Pamphylia. They've been in Galatia. They, we were talking about it a few weeks ago. They were in the cities of Lystra and Derby and Iconium. They're preaching the gospel to Gentiles, those who did not grow up hearing the promise of God. And they appointed elders in all of these churches with Gentiles, hoping to strengthen them. And then they came back to Antioch to report on what God has been doing, this great work of the gospel. And upon that report concluding is that great controversy. What must one do to be saved? Is it merely faith alone in Christ or do I have to do something? Do I have to add something to myself 
in order to be worthy of salvation or to accomplish salvation. And Paul and the apostles were quite firm and they said, no, they died on that hill and they were victorious. The work of God took place. The church unified. They recognized there were not all who were in agreement. They would leave and they began spreading false gospels. And so they sent a letter to these places in which their minds, as it, Luke tells us, were troubled. They sent letters trying to instruct them what is true, what is truth. And they greatly rejoiced at it. The church was triumphant, you might say. And so there's a big context taking place, and yet there's more of a personalized context. How do we understand Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark? Well, Luke tells you something in Acts chapter 13. When Paul, uh, when Paul and Barnabas were set apart and they were sent out, they were sent out with John Mark. John went with them on this gospel ministry adventure. And they headed to Cyprus. And there they were preaching. They came across Elymas, the magician. That is when, in which, when you're reading Acts 13, Paul is very direct. He is very firm with what is gospel truth. He rejects Elymas immediately. And then they arrive at Pamphylia. And what does Luke tell you in Acts 13? When they arrive at Pamphylia, John, Mark, left. He left them and came back to Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas, however, continued. That's where we have been. But when we pick up in verse 36, what does it say? Well, we're in Antioch and it says, and after some days. How do we understand what Luke is trying to say to you and to me? And after some days. We don't know exactly what he means, but perhaps he's talking about Paul and Barnabas having spent somewhere close to a year in Antioch. Why would we suggest a year? Because in that day and age, you would not travel during the winter. It was not safe. It was not hopeful that you might arrive. And so as there might be a difference of opinion as to what that verse actually means, part of it is we can say they've been in Antioch for some time and they're reminding people of the gospel. They're preaching. And then Paul has a great idea. Did you hear what Luke says? And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. It's been a year or so. We haven't seen them in quite some time. Barnabas, let's, let's go back. Let's go check in on them. They didn't get to text, call, or email. It was going to take an actual journey. Let's go back and let's find out how are they doing. And why might Paul want to do that? Because you remember what Paul and Barnabas experienced when they were there. It was not just the greatest ministry experience ever. They were quite severely opposed. And if you remember correctly, that opposition wasn't simply that Paul and Barnabas entered a city and they had opposition in that city. No, what you found out is by the time they got to Derby, there were Jews who traveled over a hundred miles to oppose them. That's not your two and a half hour car ride. A hundred miles to oppose the work of the gospel. And so you could imagine what Paul is beginning to think. We shared the gospel. We planted these churches. 
But Judaizers are very difficult people. They're deadly in their doctrinal teaching about what is the gospel because they preach no gospel. And so he says, let's, let's go back. Now, just as a side note, I want to encourage, especially you who are members of this church, that is part of what your shepherding elders are doing. When they send to you emails, phone calls, text messages, invitations to their house, it's a measure of saying, I haven't seen them. I hope they're okay. I want to check in. And so as many emails as you do get, I'm encouraging you, do not ignore your shepherding elder. As you would not have ignored Paul who wants to check in on you, do not ignore your elders who want to take care of your soul before the Lord. Why do we need to be aware of that? We've said it before. Because any time there is a work of the gospel, you and I need to be quite clear. Satan will oppose it. There is never a measure by which the gospel is advancing and Satan is sitting idly. He hates it and he will find any way he can to oppose it, even sending people a hundred miles on a journey to tell people the wrong news. And so Paul and Barnabas, they have an idea. Let's go check on the brothers and sisters that we reached in these places. We agree there is a needed mission of shepherding, of strengthening. It's that agreement that brings about the conflict. And so if we've talked about the context, what is the conflict? It's between Paul and Barnabas. And I want you to think about that for a moment. It's between Paul and Barnabas, two pastors, two godly men, two church leaders, two men who have been set aside for the work of the gospel, two men who've endured far more persecution than any of us could probably say. These are the two people we're talking about in conflict. It's Paul and Barnabas. They're not in conflict about whether or not we should go check on these people, but there's a measure by which who goes with us? We agree that we need to go check on the churches, but who shall take part in that? Barnabas says, let's bring John Mark. And in a simple word, Paul says, no, that's the conflict. Who's supposed to go with this? Paul wants John Mark, or uh, Barnabas wants John Mark, and Paul says, no. And you could simply say right now, is it really that big of a deal? Can't we all just get along? Is it just two grumpy old men, maybe middle-aged men? Is that the issue? They're just grumpy? They don't want to put up with it? Is Paul and Barnabas being childish? What's the issue with John Mark? Why is that such a problem? Well, that's the conflict, isn't it? Barnabas wants him, and Paul does not. Because Luke tells you in Acts 13 that when they went 
to Pamphylia, John Mark left them and went back to Jerusalem. And now we're getting a little bit more of a report. We get Luke's report on his interpretation of what Paul is saying. Because in verse 38, what do we read? But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn. That translation, thought best not, you can say something like unprofitable, inappropriate, unworthy, unwise. Those are fair translations of that word right there or that phrase. That is what Luke is telling you Paul is saying. And if that's not stimulating anything, Paul's going to go on and say, He didn't just think it best not to take with one who had withdrawn. That word withdrawn means deserted, desertion. Now that will strike emotion in every culture when we speak about what it means to be deserted by somebody, whether it's a marital relationship, a friendship, or something else. Paul is saying, I don't want John Mark. It's unwise. It's inappropriate. He deserted us. When we went to Pamphylia, now we don't know why John left. Luke doesn't tell you. We don't know what John's reason was. John being young in the faith, being early in his exposure to ministry, he goes on a portion of the visit. He agrees to that part. Is it he's out there doing ministry And he goes, this is not what I signed up for. This is a little bit too harsh. The opposition too much. I don't think that's likely. He would have been there when James was killed or John was killed. He would have been there knowing the same fate for Peter before his escape. Did he lack boldness? Is that the issue for John Mark? He left because he's not bold enough in ministry. We don't know. Luke says he deserted. Luke reports what Paul says he deserted. Maybe it's because he's young and he had a a fantasy of what ministry was really like. Maybe some of you have a fantasy with what ministry is really like. Some of you who are younger and you want to enter into the ministry, John Mark is a good example for you to understand what it's like. Some of you just think pastors don't do anything except for one day a week. You have this fantasy that we stay home, sit at home. In fact, at one point, someone told me in my life, if you can't do anything else with your life, you should go into ministry. That was their understanding of what it means to be a pastor. Is that why John Mark left? Because ministry is just, you can't cut it in life, so you have to do ministry? Is that how you view your pastors? I don't think so, but worth the question. Why did John Mark leave? Why did he go back? Could he not cut it? He didn't have what it took. You see, John Mark came from a very privileged family. I don't know if you knew that. You read Acts very closely. Who is John Mark related to? Mary. And Mary has, by all intents and purposes, a mansion. She's got a, quite a setup for her house. She's packing 120 people in a room. I don't even know what that room would look like other than a sanctuary. But she's got a house that fits 120 people. John Mark is connected with her. 
He's related to her. Is he privileged? Is that why he didn't want to go? Life at home is far better. He's connected with Barnabas. Most likely they're cousins. And you remember early on in Acts, what did Barnabas do? He had quite a bit of property himself. He sold all of it to give it to the church. Is that the issue? John, you're just not going to be able to make it. You have a privileged mindset. And so you left the work. To be clear, he left the work, not the faith. Why did he leave? Barnabas says, I want him. Paul says, no. You can imagine that conflict, can't you? Barnabas, the the son of encouragement, the man of second chances. I want to give him a second chance. Everyone deserves a second chance. This is Barnabas. This is the Barnabas in Acts 9 who gave Paul a second chance when nobody wanted to have anything to do with him. We're not quite sure. Is this a tactic to come kill the church? Barnabas gave Paul a second chance. Everyone deserves a second chance. There's Barnabas, leader in the church, mentor, you might say, to Paul. And Paul says, no, I do not want John Mark. And so Luke gives you a subtle English phrase. He says what in verse 39? A sharp disagreement. Now, I don't think we have the right understanding of what he means when he says a sharp disagreement. That is the word that the Septuagint uses in the Old Testament to speak of God's wrath. This is a fury, a, an intensely angered disagreement. This is not, I don't like. This is, we're never going to see eye to eye. This is unacceptable. And in fact, one man, Eugene Peterson, he gives to you the message. It's not a translation, so don't think of it that way. Do you know how he describes it? He says, John Mark quit. Nobody wants to go to battle with a quitter. Barnabas says yes. Paul says no. And you can imagine that scene, can't you? There's just been a great victory for the church We have united together on justification by faith alone, how one is in fact saved. And here we are discussing who's going to go and we cannot come to an agreement. Now I know the question you're asking. Who's right? Who got it right? Is it Paul or is it Barnabas? Who's right? There are people on all sides. Some people say it's Barnabas. He was right. Some people say Paul is right. Your passive aggressives say somewhere in the middle. Who's right? You know, Luke is more than a historian. We're about a chapter away, and Luke's going to start using a phrase. When these guys are on missionary journeys, do you know what Luke is going to say? He's going to start saying, we. Luke actually goes on these missionary journeys with Paul. Luke knew Paul quite well. He knew his personality. He knew his temper. He knew what made him tick. 
He knows exactly what Paul is thinking here. And yet, Luke doesn't tell you who's right. He doesn't tell you what should have been done. And I think we need to have that same mindset. In conflict, it's very easy to point fingers. It's always their fault. We're rarely ones who want to look in the mirror and go, what about me? Where have I messed up? It's always their fault. But here, you and I need to be even more cautious because the scripture is silent. And so simply stated, so should you be. It doesn't tell you who's right. Don't pick a side. The scripture's silence should mean you are silent on the matter. And so they disagree. Now, before we talk about what happened upon this disagreement, I want you to consider a few things. The first, there is a difference between disagreement and division. I want you to hear me say that. There's difference between disagreement and division. They absolutely disagreed. It did not come to a conclusion by which they were together. But what did neither party do? They did not leave and go plant their own church for their own sake. We don't like your opinion, so we're just going to go do our own thing. They didn't quit and come up with their own denomination. They didn't quit and go over to some other church just simply because I think I like it there better. They stayed the course of what they were called to do, which is take the gospel to the Gentiles. We'll see that. But you and I need to know, and some of you need to tell yourself right now, it's actually okay to disagree. If you are married, you need to know that. Now, you've already understood that experientially because you've never agreed on all things, or at least one of you is lying. It's okay to disagree. It's not okay to create division unless it's over a doctrinal essential. And that's what you see here, isn't it? They are altogether unified on doctrine. They died on that hill. But they weren't going to die on the hill. What color should we paint the church? What kind of school do we have to send our children to? What kind of studies should we do? Who should clean what? Who should serve where? They weren't going to die on that hill. They just disagreed. They also didn't ignore it. They recognized that they did disagree. And they talked about it. They didn't just stuff it down. That's what I do. Are you mad? I'm fine. Fine for me is, it's a multitude of words. My wife is quite helpful. Fine happy, fine sad, fine mad, fine you're not sure. It's all over the map. They didn't ignore the problem. They recognized there was a problem, and so they talked about it. It wasn't going to be pushed down for an explosion later. And they became to, or they came to the point where it's kind of, we have to agree to disagree, but we'll continue the mission. And in our day, we just don't understand this. We take matters of far less importance and make them doctrinal statements. And we divide over 
and over and over again. I think Paul and Barnabas become a model. How do we rightly disagree? If there's a matter of the truth of God's word, you die on that hill. But if it's a paint color, you can say okay. And it's going to, in fact, to be okay. I wish the church understood what Paul and Barnabas were going through. Many of you who are members, you remember that last question, don't you? Seek the peace and purity of the church. It doesn't mean you have to agree on all things, but it does mean we do all things out of brotherly love. And Paul and Barnabas seem to have that understanding. Now, what happened? What's the result? What are the consequences of this? They were separated. We know that there's not an immediate resolution. But what do we learn? To have such a large-scale event, you might say, with so few verses and information, how do we understand what, in fact, took place? It's a very important moment in the life of the church. What you see is two leaders of the church disagree and they go their separate ways. And yet, if you just read it simply, what you'll learn is there is a God who rules above them. And in spite of them, these two men cannot save the church. They cannot perfect the church. They cannot grow the church. It's God himself who grows the church. He needs not your perfection because you do not have it. He rules and he reigns. Maybe you're saying, what an argument. Who would argue with Paul? Many people. Paul was not the smartest of smart people. He was a sinner, a sanctified sinner, but a sinner nonetheless. And what you get is a great savior who is above him saying, this is my body and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. That ought to make you feel good because it means you cannot derail the church. You can certainly confuse her. You can certainly trouble her, but you cannot kill her. Because there is one who rules and reigns and says, it will not happen. I've given my life and she is mine. And nothing can snatch her out of my hand. And so we have a conflict that takes place. There's sin that is present. And yet isn't grace all the more there? What was the original idea? Paul says to Barnabas, we need to go check on him. And Barnabas suggested we bring John Mark. And so what happened in this consequence? Well, Paul decides to take Silas. Barnabas takes John Mark. They go to Cyprus. But Paul takes Silas. And they go to Syria, Cilicia. And in fact, if you keep reading, they will eventually get back to Galatia. And so what do we learn? We went from two to four. We went from One intern to two. One who's exposed. Now we have multiple men being exposed to gospel ministry. Isn't it great news that the the reconciliation work of God is not merely dependent upon the shoulders of men? God has promised that it will work. And his grace supersedes all of your sin. 
both in ministry and in life. He cares for his church. Believers, you need to know sin and evil never gets the last word. Isn't that the powerful truth that you remember in the life of Joseph? You meant it for evil, is what he says to his brothers. God meant it for good. Now, I'm not providing license for you just to go sinning against your brothers to see how good God's grace is. That's not the point of the passage. But it is the reminder that sin does not exceed grace in the gospel. Grace upon grace upon grace is yours in Christ Jesus. And so we see a multiplication of ministry, but you also get a healing of relationship, don't you? There's no indication in the rest of the New Testament that Paul and Barnabas ever had a relationship based on disrespect. In fact, later on, Paul is going to commend Barnabas for his good gospel ministry. And you thought, well, what about John Mark? That, I can understand how Paul and Barnabas, having fought all those battles together, they might make amends. But what about John Mark? You see the powerful grace of God in his life, don't you? Paul will write some 10 years later to the church at Colossae, and what will he say to them? He will say, welcome, John Mark. Welcome, John Mark, because he is a fellow worker with me in the kingdom of God. But do you know what's more powerful than that? The last chapter of the last book that Paul ever wrote Do you remember what he's saying there? That's 2 Timothy 4. He says, Demas, he departed. He left me. He deserted me. Christians went to Galatia, and then he's going to go as far as to say, everybody has deserted me. All have left me. Do you remember what he says? Get Mark. Get John Mark and bring him to me for he is of good use to me. Don't you see the extreme shift? He's deserted us. No, we're not taking him. And then Paul finds himself in a place where all have deserted him. Go get John Mark. He is useful for ministry. Don't you see the grace of God in John Mark's life? This would not have been like a three-person meeting. This was a public and passionate disagreement. John Mark is standing before the church being told, you're not coming, you're not cutting it, you will not go with me. How humiliating that would be. What would you do if someone humiliated you like that? He does not leave the church and he does not leave the faith. He grows in grace to the point where he is useful at the very end of Paul's life. I wonder if any of you are asking that question this morning. Can God use me? Can God use me knowing what I've done? And maybe done, you're thinking, years ago. Maybe you're thinking earlier this morning. Can God use me knowing what I have done? The answer is yes. Because John Mark's life demonstrates, first, you have to have an understanding of the saving grace of God that the saving grace of God covers all of your sin. 
When God says he forgives you, he didn't think specifically of just one sin. He covered all of your past, even this very day that is your present, and all the ones you will commit that you haven't even considered yet. He covers all of your sin. And for some of you, you need to hear me say, all of your sin. It means you are not beyond the saving power of Christ. You do not have a sin that is measured higher than his grace. He can, in fact, save any and all. And some of you might be saying, I think I am a Christian, but my past is horrifying. You're not beyond sanctification either. The one who began the work will complete the work. The requirement is still the same. None of us are getting into heaven without a perfect, holy record. And that is the work of Christ in your life. If you are in him now, he is perfecting you in this life and you will be presented blameless in the next. That's your hope of salvation. Not just merely that he justified you, but he will also sanctify you. You're not beyond sanctification. You and I can grow in grace. We do need to use the means of grace. That is coming to worship regularly with the priority of seeing Jesus, that is using his word, that is praying, that is fellowshipping with the brothers and sisters, that is how we grow in grace. All of us can grow in grace. I just want to encourage you to respond to it. Do not withdraw from it when you find yourself in sin. Engage the good news of the gospel because it really is good news. It's good news that God saves sinners. And it's good news that the church isn't built by the faithfulness of Paul and Barnabas. The church is built because of Christ. That's true for our church. That's the way in which we should pray for Smyrna Presbyterian Church. This church doesn't grow because of anything your pastors do. It grows because of the one in which they tell you about. It's Jesus I promise you need a whole lot less of me in your life. And many of you would say amen to that. Please don't. You need Jesus. You need him. And if you'll stand on him, and this church will, you have every hope for the future. It matters not who rules in Washington. It matters not who comes over to the states. It matters not what controversy in culture there is. You have every hope because Jesus has promised such that if you remain in him and he remains in you, you will bear much fruit. And so I want to encourage you, have hope. Do not give so much attention to disagreement. Give far more attention to the one who gave his life for this church. Don't you love this passage? Out of the depth of great conflict, what we see is the church will grow because of Christ. Let's pray to that end. Our God and our Father, we are clear on a few things. Disagreement happens regularly in our life and in our world. Even in our church, 
And yet it's not disagreement that stifles growth. It's our failure to come to you that perhaps stifles or stunts growth. So might we be a church? Might we be a person who before the throne of grace comes recognizing the forgiveness of sin and being pushed into the gospel of grace? Might we have it applied to our life? Those who can't wait to worship morning and evening, those who can't wait to pray, those who can't wait to spend time with other believers because we need more of Christ and we need more of your grace found in those arenas. And so we ask, O Lord, please help us be a church that demonstrates the good news of the gospel in our agreements and even in our disagreements that we might be used for your kingdom purposes. We ask in and through Christ Jesus, our Lord.